Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. So today's teaching text is from Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, You do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, You can set it right there. This is a serious passage. Uh, As Nancy's reading, I'm... um, a little intimidating, actually, to, to hear it and to, to think about what uh, God desires. So um, welcome and good morning. Uh, we're going through a series where we're talking about our values as a church and how we want to cultivate them, and we're talking about cultivating justice and uh, mercy today. And what this really does is actually highlight the second part of our vision statement. We want to be a community following Jesus, and the second part is seeking the good of our city. And so that's what I want to uh, talk about today via this passage. But why don't we pray as we begin? So, Lord, I love you, and um, when we look at this passage, we get to see your heart. We get to see the type of world that you long for for us to exist in. And right now, God, I pray that um, as we came into this room, that we bring our whole selves in, that if uh, our hearts are uh, hardened, maybe, that you would soften them, that if we're bringing in cynicism, that that cynicism would just melt away as we think about Um, the world that you long for. 
Um, I pray, God, that not only we would hear in our heads and our minds and our thoughts, but that actually um, these values that we speak to would actually begin to seek deep into our hearts for the kind of people that we long to be. And um, God, may your spirit um, have its way today, that we may hear you respond to to you, that we might walk out of here in obedience to what you're um, speaking to us. And uh, we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So summer leading up to the launch of our church, we were, um, you know, crafting our vision as a church, um, and alongside that, um, you know, on whiteboards was basically doing experiments, Um, and when I say experiments, it was like, how do we actually begin to do this? How do we begin to flesh this out? And um, we came up with an idea called the Justice Dinners, and really it was an experiment. How do we get around the table with individuals that we might call are the other And so we came to one of our friends at the time at the Youth Justice Network and said, could we share meals with some of your youth who have been incarcerated? And we did. And the intention wasn't really to solve anything or to unveil or uncover like a a youth's journey, but rather it was to listen and to learn together. And so we ate food. Uh, We went around for the night and uh, we shared our names. And then we simply um, only had time for this one question, which is, what is an injustice that breaks your heart? What is an injustice that breaks your heart? And so we go around sharing about wealth disparities, hearing about individuals experiencing homelessness, single mothers, the housing crisis, violence done to black and brown bodies. And the goal that night was to just let that stay there, listen to one another and have relationship. And what I didn't know at the time was that we were beginning to actually cultivate in our hearts and listen to other people and let those things begin um, to form us, this heart for justice and mercy. And I'll be clear, there's uh, structural and organizational things to do, but we're cultivating the heart, right? We're letting God say, this is what I want, and then we can organize and, and clarify. And so as we begin today, I just want to sort of let that settle in you. What is an injustice that breaks your heart? That you, that you would say, um, when I see that, when I hear that, it bothers me. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're doing action for that, but what is it that stirs in you? And this passage is, is wonderful precisely because it doesn't, it's not giving us vague ideas on how to solve problems, but it's actually giving us God's heartbeat for the kind of world we want to live in. So here's how I want to look at today's passage. Keep that kind of in the back of your mind there. But I want to look at God's point of view on justice and mercy in this passage. And then I want to talk about our posture in justice and mercy. And um, I want to talk about three sort of postures in in our own lives and in our own hearts that we can actually um, model so that we can um, live like God wants us to in the world. And then I'll wrap up really, really quickly just talking about the gospel um, because I think that's what helps frame everything here. All right, so God's point of view. Our passage um, is uh, powerful. It presents to you a very religious group of people. Here's how verse 2 begins. For day after day, they seek me out, they being uh, the people of Israel. All right, and then then see their, their heart here. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So look at this, day after day. What does that mean? It means there's a regular rhythm, or maybe a better way to say it is, they're faithful. They, seem, they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways. So this group is, uh, they have a regular rhythm of, or a faithful rhythm, and then they're eager, they're 
passionate, right? And then it says they seek me out. This is a Hebrew way of saying um, that they're worshipers, right? So they're faithful, they're passionate, they're worshiping. And then this blew my mind um, when I read this. They ask me for just decisions. They're moral, right? They have uh, uh, ethics, they have beliefs, they have standards. And you look at the passage and what do you see described? A group of people that's faithful, passionate, worshiping, and moral. You're like, wow, they, they seem like a pretty good community, right? This is a, a group of people. And yet, how does the passage begin? With allegations against them. Verse one says this, declare to my people their what? Their rebellion. And to the descendants of Jacob, their sins. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I thought that you said they're faithful and passionate and worshiping and moral people. And yet, you open by saying, declare to my people their rebellion. Right? And look, and look how they respond in verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we not humbled ourselves and you have not noticed, right? We pray. We're serving on the AV team, right? We're getting the live stream, like, hooked up, right? We, we actually get to church on time, right? Not 1110, right? It's like 1101 kind of on time, right? Why, why, are we, why are we doing this if you have not noticed? Like, we, my spouse and I, we didn't even fight on the train over like, come on. Like, God really loves us, right? And then we get a little clue here as, as to what's going on. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers, right? There's the clue, right? You take it easy on the Sabbath, right? You, you observe the Sabbath, you fast, you pray, but secretly you exploit your workers. Behind closed, closed doors, it's a little different, right? Um, my, my heart was just broken this week. I was in a meeting with a, another pastor, um, and he had just mentioned um, another pastor that we know that I deeply respect that was accused of uh, abusive leadership. And I, didn't, I almost didn't believe him um, when he said it. I was like, no, I, I, I love that guy, you know? And it just sank into me that there's a sort of dichotomy um, that's presented in the passage, right, of something that looks a specific way externally but then internally or behind closed doors, there's something else there. And I love that in, in this passage, in God's point of view, God is calling them out. And yet, he doesn't leave them there. He actually shares what it is that he desires. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. A yoke is something you, you place on a, a beast, a bird, an animal that can carry a load. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God, what do you want me to do in this world? How, how do you want me to be? Right, because I think for us, we would say, I desire to be a faithful passionate, worshiping, moral person, but what is it actually that God wants us to do or how to live in this world, right? And, and God seems to be almost saying to them, the passage is a little sassy, like, you, you, you want to know me? You want to you seek me? You want to really do what is right? Then you have to be like me and care about justice and mercy. You say you have a relationship with me, but if you don't care about the naked, if you don't care about the hungry, and if you don't care about the oppressed, then the likelihood that you, you love me and know me is, is not true. And I don't know about you, but when I read this passage this week, I'm like, I don't want to read this passage out loud. I don't want to call myself out in that sense. And then I thought, well, you know what? This is just like one part of Isaiah. 
It's just one, this is just one part of the Old Testament, right? This is not like a repeated thing. And then I read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. This is like the first chapter of Isaiah. It says this, learn to do right, seek justice. And then he gets more specific, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Learn to do right and seek justice. Now, when you and I think about the word justice, um, it, it, can, um, it can mean a, a lot of different things, but we primarily think of justice as punishment um, for wrongdoing or a, a, a sort of punitive action, right? But that's actually in the Old Testament, not actually what is talked about. Justice in the Old Testament is about looking out for the needs uh, of people that are otherwise, and, and, and through no fault to their own, are oppressed, marginalized, and downtrodden. And there's two words primarily used in the Hebrew for, for justice. The one that's used here in, in the book of Isaiah is actually um, not about a, a type of reparation or punishment for wrongdoing, but what it's actually about is it's proactive. Even when you read the passage, you're, you're catching, there, there's something for me to leave and go do, right? There's a sort of proactive um, care on behalf of vulnerable people. And one of the important things about this passage here is you're catching a repetition that's found all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff is a really um, amazing Old Testament scholar, and he uh, used this phrase um, to talk about um, who acts of justice and mercy should actually be geared towards. I mean, he called it, it's very beautiful, he called it the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable, and he's talking about widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And the poor in the Bible can, can be um, like an economic status, or those are, who find themselves in economic distress, but it also can refer to someone who's socially outcast. And that quartet of the vulnerable is actually where acts of justice are to, to, to be honed in on and focused on. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And so justice is about people in these four categories having a life that is good and fair, and maybe the best word to use is the word right. Right, as in righteous. This is what Jesus came to do. And you might, you might even say, well, you know, that's a, it's kind of a good, like, Old Testament idea. That's a good Old Testament standard. But if you look in Luke's gospel, the first time Jesus stands up to preach in, in Luke chapter 4, he, he's in his hometown in Nazareth. He stands up. Someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah, and here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What are you hearing? You're hearing Isaiah 58 right here. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I love this part. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is Jesus-like dropping the mic, right? That's all I needed to do today. That was the whole sermon, right? Like, I just need to read this and move on, right? What is he saying? He's quoting Isaiah, and he's saying, the quartet of the vulnerable is my heart. God's heart is for the poor and the marginalized in the Old Testament, and Jesus is saying, and right here and right now. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, um, they, they, there was this saying in, in, um, in uh, the Jewish prophets. They coined this mantra, and here it is. And I, I just, I want to let this sink in for us today. The quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in society fared while you were alive. 
The quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in society fared while you were alive. This is God's point of view. This is the heart of God. This is what God cares about. And so I want to bring that question back. What is an injustice that breaks your heart? Because actually what I, what I believe is that um, God put that there. And that God moves in that area because he wants to use you and he wants you to partner with him to meet those needs and to respond in those ways. Is it housing costs and crisis, wealth disparities, race and gender disparities, addiction recovery, the elderly, immigrants? There's so many things in our world that are not right. And um, I won't, I won't get, get into this list here because I, we'll get to it in a second. But what is it, what is it that, that God is actually stirring in you in, the, in that regard? And so this is God's point of view. So how do, we, how do we respond? Or what can I, our posture be? And I use this word posture. Maybe you're like, Why, wh- 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 what do you mean posture? Um, I'm 34 years old and my back hurts, all right? So like, I don't know what it's like to, you know, be a little bit older. So uh, my neck hurts, you know, and I'm like, I, I sit too much. It takes a ton of effort to, to be mindful about how I'm sitting and I need to like go on walks more and I should wear better shoes, all those things, right? Um, all that would aid in my posture, and I actually think that in the same way, when we hear God's point of view, um, we actually are moved, right? Like, we're actually stirred. There's something in us. There's a, a neighbor we're thinking about. There's a person that's on our block that we're mindful of. There's a way that we say, I think I might need to go in that direction. And so what, what actually I think we need to do is reposture ourselves, right? So let me give you three sort of postures, um, and, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. True justice and mercy means, the first thing is this, seeing others differently, and, and, and I, I should have put this into two points, actually, because for some of us in the room, what we actually need to be um, reminded of or mindful of is that we actually need to see the other. Like, just, just simply, we actually need to see, right? It's so easy in our city to be grinded down, hardened, cynical. There's so many needs around us. It's like, I can't do it all. I can't take all that energy and all those people in. But it begins by seeing others differently. I want to read this passage again, and notice how relational it is. Notice, notice there's a relationship here. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Right? The, the work of justice and mercy is not a cause we're talking about people. We're talking about neighbors. We're talking about brothers and sisters. Uh, Sung Chan Ra wrote a book called Prophetic Lament. He says it like this. The tendency to view the holistic work of the church as the action of the privileged towards the marginalized often derails the work of true community healing. Ministry in the urban context, acts of justice and racial reconciliation require a deeper engagement with the other an engagement that acknowledges suffer, suffering rather than glossing over it. Never in my life um, have I seen wealth disparities like in New York City. Um, Union Square is a really great example. I'll never forget, uh, my, my daughter was probably two. We were going on a walk in Union Square, um, walking around, it's like crazy. You know, I'm like, should I play chess? Should I not play chess? I've never played chess. Um, I'm walking around, there's protests and noise and I'll never forget I was walking with Rose and saw a little baggie with with drugs in it 
like it looked, it was like kind of empty, but there was a, a little bit of like, it looked like cocaine in there. And Rose almost picked it up. And I was like, picking up Rose. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, don't touch that, you know. And I don't, it may have been like this, it was probably about the same week. Um, I was looking on Street Easy for a two bedroom in the neighborhood. And I couldn't find in a two block radius, a two bedroom for less than $4,800. And you guys know what it's like. There's a restaurant on 22nd Street, um, Italian restaurant, um, and if you go there at night, the, the restaurant has, you know, overflowed into the street, you know, 50 plus dollars a plate, you're probably, you know, if you're in for drinks, you're $80 a person, and someone sleeps 10 feet away around the corner on the ground, and these are the types of, of ways, I think, as a community, um, we should be stirred in. That we should be thinking about. I'm not, I'm not saying that we need to figure out exactly how to solve these things right away, right? But are we walking our blocks? Are we starting to actually see what's going on in our neighborhood and around us? I love that when Jesus saw the crowds um, in, in Matthew and in, in Luke, it says, he saw the crowds, and you remember what it says? He had compassion on them. Uh, one of, Matthew or Luke, I can't remember which one said, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, the word uh, compassion in the Greek is a really fun word. It's um, splognizomai. Uh, in in the, the root word there is splogna, and splogna is actually your, like your guts, right? So, so what the passage is saying, if you could understand Greek, is saying that when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt sick to his stomach. Like he was stirred in his belly because he saw the great need that they have. He, he felt like, oh, I got to do something about this, a deep care. True justice and mercy means seeing others differently. There's a great book, um, if you're interested in kind of tuning into some of this, a book called When Helping Hurts. And in it, the authors talk about how to alleviate poverty without enabling or hurting the poor. And they tell this story about how at the end of World War II, uh, the Allies established the World Bank to um, finance the rebuilding of Europe. And they were very, very, very successful. In fact, the economy in Europe experienced the fastest growth in its history. And so because of its success in in rebuilding the uh, economy and the infrastructure, the World Bank actually said, why don't we go to low-income countries and try the same strategy, which was uh, lend money on very generous terms to promote economic growth and reduce poverty. And so they pour out all this capital, and it doesn't work. And so the, the uh, pouring out of capital worked in places like France, but it wasn't working in Africa or in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, and so the problems on the surface look the same, right? Poverty, starvation, um, housing displacement, uh, lack of infrastructure, inadequate social services. Um, it, it wasn't working. And so the World Bank decided to do something different. Um, instead of trying to solve problems with money from afar, they actually got on the ground and began to interview the poor themselves. They asked more than 60,000 people from 60 low-income countries a very basic question, which is, what is poverty? They published a book from this called The Voices of the Poor, and I just want to read you a couple quotes here. This is a, a person in Moldova. What is poverty? For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. A person in Guinea-Bissau said, when I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow, mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to feed the family. 
I'm not well when I'm unemployed, and it's terrible. And before we go to the next one, I just want you to notice um, the familial and the relational way that people describe their poverty. Next one, in Latvia, somebody said, during the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves ones depressed, creating a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. And then this woman, when one is poor, she has no say in public. She feels inferior. She has no food, so there's famine in her house, no clothing, and no progress in her family. A lot of times we think about needs like this and we say, well, let's just pour out capital. Let's just, let's, just, let's just feed people. But clearly there's something actually deeper going on. Here's how the author of the book um, described this. While poor people mention having a lack of material things, they tend to describe their condition in far more psychological and social terms than our North American audiences. Poor people typically talk in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. If we want to join Jesus in, in his work of justice and mercy, then we have to start by seeing people differently. We have to actually um, see this sort of work as a renovation that God wants to do in our own hearts, and he wants to change us and how we're um, viewing other people. True justice and mercy means seeing others differently. Next, it means this, disadvantaging ourselves. And I'll be really quick here. This may seem obvious, but if you really want to love others, if you really want to serve others and advocate for others, then it's actually going to be a work of sacrifice. Uh, verse 10 is really simple. I love this. If you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the press, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. Spend yourself right? Like give of yourself. It flows out of you. You have, to, you have to limit yourself, time, resources, energy for others. This guy, Bruce Waltke, he commented on this passage and he said, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. Like just, just own that for a second, right? The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage community. Isn't that what our passage is saying? The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Right? So we read the Bible and we say, of course, you know, I'm not supposed to lie. I'm not supposed to cheat on my spouse. I'm not to, you know, harm other people. Like, I know the visible things that I'm supposed to do, but isn't it equally wicked to know the thing you're supposed to do and not do it? Even if it's, if, even if it's less visible, right? Right? To not feed the poor when you have the power to do so. That's wicked, right? Taking so much income out of the business that the employees are paid poorly, that's wicked, right? Or, or even today when God is stirring in your heart to do something and you're like, uh, next year, next time we preach on justice and mercy, right? Like, not today. In all these ways, what, what we can actually choose to do is disadvantage ourselves in, in humility. I'm not, I'm not excited about sharing this idea, but then we advantage others. And then lastly, here's this one. True justice and mercy means delight over duty. Are we, are we driven, motivated by duty, or are we driven and motivated by um, delight? You know, it's, it's interesting, um, we, um, we plan our services and we talk about our, our announcements um, and, you know, ways that we want to uh, engage, we, we share ideas. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. We can, you know, pitch ideas about going to the Father's Heart or uh, going up to the Bowery Mission Women's Center, um, and we can almost pitch it as a sense of, like, it's our duty, right? It, it's our duty to do this. And maybe when you hear it, you think, 
well, you know what, I, I should sign up for that. It would be good for me um, to give my time away. Or maybe you'd say, you know what, I, I want to be a good person. Good people do that, right? But duty isn't going to change your heart, right? And I, I, I think duty, in, in the end, can create a sense of entitlement for us. It's not going after the deep humility that we actually desire. And I, I studied this passage for so long this week, kept reading it over and over and over and again. And I'm like, how do we really get to the, the motivation for how we serve? What is the right posture? And we didn't read this part of the passage, but, but this is how the passage ends. There's just two more verses. He says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speak idle words, then you will find what? Joy. And there it was. Delight. Then you will find your joy in what? In the Lord. Those are two very different postures, right? Duty, right? And I don't know, maybe for some of you, you'd say, well, you know what? Sometimes a sense of duty can turn into delight. Like in college, I, I, I went to college, I didn't really like reading over time, I'm like, oh, actually, I love to read, right? And so that duty can turn into delight, but I think in this instance, the danger is, is that if we're always serving um, in the sense of duty, we get two things. We get burned out or we get entitlement, right? We get burned out, we say, oh, I'm just so tired of doing this. It's too much of a sacrifice. Or we say, you know what? I've been giving a lot, so I actually deserve things. I'm pretty awesome, so, so actually now I'm deserving. But what if instead you were motivated by delight, where, where you and I would say, actually, you know what? I, I want to participate in acts of justice and mercy because guess where my delight is? My delight is in Jesus. And I understand what he did and how he sacrificed and how he gave and how he looked on the crowds with compassion. And, and you know what? I don't even care what other people think about me, but my, action, my, my delight is in Jesus. And that's what he did. That's what he wants me to do. That will motivate you to the ends of the earth. The, the, the endless motivation. You're, you're never going to run out. Why? Because when you, look at the, when you look at this passage... And then you, you, you turn to the New Testament, you look, you'd say, wow, God really identifies with the poor. God really identifies with the quartet of the vulnerable. God really, he, he puts an emphasis on how we should live like that. But God didn't just do that. What God did is he said, you know what? I'm not just going to identify from afar, but in my son Jesus, I'm actually going to get on the ground, right? He didn't just identify with the poor from a distance, but he actually said, I will come into this world poor, born to a poor set of parents, born in a feeding trough, not in the centrum of power in Rome or uh, Jerusalem, but in the backwoods, Bethany, Galilee. This is it right here. All the motivation that you and I need is actually founded in, in this thing called the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus. We're re-motivated, right? I know what it actually looks like to do this now because Jesus is the one that actually paved the way. If I look at Jesus and I say, God in his, in his kindness and love towards me became poor so that I might become rich. Oh, that makes sense to me, actually. That remotivates me. Look at the humility of God's suffering in the person of Jesus on the cross. That remotivates me. And what this actually could do today is it could humble you, but it could also affirm you. That you could look on Jesus with delight and say, I know what he did. And that's going to do everything to reframe. Jesus didn't just... Love the orphan and the widow and the immigrant and the poor. 
but he joined them. He became like them, and he died as one on the margins so that he, our God, could take on our junk, that we could find power to do this work in him. And so here's where I want to end today, and the band can come up. I want to end um, with this prayer of confession today. And we do this from time to time. But if, if, if there's a sort of stirring in you, I think that maybe it would begin with just an admission that um, there are things that we've done and there's things we left undone. And so I'll leave this up here for just a second. And then let's say this together as we end. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord, amen. And then here today, you don't need to say this part, but hear this assurance of pardon spoken over for you. Hear the good news. Christ died and rose again for us. He reigns in power and prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone and a new life has begun. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. If the servers could come um, with the, the elements, uh, I'll pray for us. And so, Father, we love you. And um, right now, as we um, partake of this communion meal, may we actually be reminded in this moment of our great need, our own brokenness, our own uh, limitations, the ways that we um, fall short. And as we take these elements today, may we taste and see May we know your goodness and your sacrifice, the ways that you give to others, and maybe a little smile on our face today that we might delight in you and your goodness. We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray.